So people of God in Christ, this is now our third time in Romans 5, 1 through 11. I'm sure you have noticed. Um, the first time we uh, took these 11 verses as a whole uh, to hear the teaching of Scripture regarding reconciliation. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. That's, that's our salvation in terms of reconciliation. Next, we narrowed down, we focused in on the first half of the passage to pay attention to Paul's chain of effect in the Christian life. Here is Paul, again, being very logical, spelling things out for us, forming certain equations, we might even say. Uh, the earlier chain of logic, if you recall, was, the, was, uh, was that propitiation brings redemption, redemption brings justification, and, and therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, reconciliation. But now here's another chain. The Apostle Paul uh, spent so much time uh, in chains, physical metal chains, that maybe this was a a providence for us, uh, that he was uh, made able by his chains to to teach us better. Uh, Maybe he sat in prison counting uh, the links in the chain on his ankle and thinking theologically. Well, that's a stretch, perhaps. Uh, Certainly not something told us uh, explicitly. Uh, But there's another chain in the the first half of Romans 1, of Romans 5, 1 through 11. It begins with this rather startling, somewhat uh, jaw-dropping statement, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings, at least we can and we should. Probably all too often we don't. But we rejoice in our suffering because suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. If you recall, Paul first started out talking about hope at the end of Romans 4. Then he moved on to peace and joy, only now to return to hope. So hope, peace, and joy, it's, it's Paul's triad, we might say, his triad of blessing in the gospel. And, and, and aren't these the things that we want? The, the problem is, is that sinners don't want hope, peace, and joy on God's terms, but on their own. But if we would just listen, may God give me to listen we should pray if, 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 if we should just listen to the good news and understand that the goodness of the good news starts at the cross. It starts with propitiation. It, it, it accomplishes then redemption, which means that we are right with God. We are justified. And, uh, and that only as we trust that this has been done for us so that we have hope and we have peace. And we have joy. And all of this by way of the love of God. The irony then, in the midst of all this logic, 
these several chains of explanation of what Christ did for us, Paul mentions next the love of God, and and so many people just it would seem turn their brains off again. Paul could hardly be more logical in the first four chapters of Romans, continuing now in the fifth chapter of Romans. And yet when, when he names the love of God, God's love in verse 5, many people, maybe ourselves included, at the mention of God's love, many people would say, Ah, the love of God, how sweet, how kind, how cuddly. Thank you, God, for dropping all the theology and, and just telling us about your love. This is what love is, right, in our culture. And, and this is one of the better definitions of love. Uh, when, when sodomy is considered love, then this definition becomes more attractive. Namely, just the warm feeling of love. Valentine's Day love. Love in the form of red hearts and, uh, and flowers. It seems that uh, only recently people have figured out how to form a, the shape of a heart with their hands. I, I'm not sure I, I even know how to do that, but um, I'm not sure what it means that I don't know how to do that. But, uh, but is that what love is? Is, is? is love a red heart? Does love come in the shape of a heart, whether it's pink or red? Is that what the love of God is? Well, I surely hope not. And indeed it isn't. Paul writes that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So here Paul first uses the word love in his letter to the Romans. Do a search on your computer and and you'll see Paul's first reference to love. And, And it's the love of God that he refers to. But it's not a red heart love. It's not a touchy-feely love. It's the substantive love of God in Christ. Having first given reference, having first written of the love of God in verse 5, Paul goes on to define it, to explain it, by speaking of those who receive God's love. The first point is even the weakness of sinners loved. Paul is is not going to leave us to just say, ah, to God's love. God has loved us in Christ. And Paul, or as Paul puts it, God's love has even been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit uh, who has been given to us. But here is what Paul means by this. In verse 6, 4. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What this means is that you will not understand the love of God until you understand and know how unlovable you and I really are. And so Paul appeals to to common wisdom. He did this once before, if you recall, in chapter 4, when he said, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. You get what you earn in this life. Everyone understands that. 
but it's a point to the contrary, we might say. It's, it's an opportunity to understand the otherworldliness of the gospel, that in the gospel it's the one who does not work, but believes in the God who justifies the ungodly, whose faith is counted as righteousness. Well, here is Paul again doing something similar. He calls upon us to just, just stop and think about it. Think with me about this, says Paul. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might even dare to die. Paul's not denying that that human beings can be magnanimous. Uh, They can, uh, by way of adrenaline, uh, in a moment of crisis, give their life for the life of another. We see it in our soldiers. They go to war for us. Some of them give their lives for us. But the last thing a soldier thinks as he charges into battle, facing his own death, is, I am willing to die for the drug dealers on the streets of Terre Haute. No, there, there are greater values uh, set before the soldier as he charges into battle, values like freedom and democracy, uh, the family grilling out uh, in their backyard, the children growing up in a free country, uh, the life and prosperity of good people living in the land of the free and, and the home of the brave. This is what motivates a soldier charging into battle. So this is what Paul means when he says, For one will scarcely die, For a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one might even dare to die. But this is the contrast, according to Paul. This is the backdrop against which we again come to see an otherworldly gospel. This is the backdrop against which we come to understand and know the love of God in Christ, because verse 8 says, But God shows His love... For us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus uh, said the same thing about himself uh, when he said, uh, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. They were, if you recall, they were criticizing him for spending time with sinners and and, and, and we can know for sure that Jesus was not hanging out with sinners in any way to make light of their sin. But he was willing to spend time with sinners in order to teach sinners the word of God and to call sinners to be his disciples, which is to say, to call sinners to repentance and faith in him. Those who are well have no need of, of a physician, but those who are sick, said Jesus. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Well, it's the same logic here in Romans 5, the same, the same explanation for the love of God that while among mere men, someone, somewhere, might be willing to die to save the life of a good person, yet the love of God is shown in this, that Christ didn't die for good people. Why would he need to die for a good person? Instead, he came and died for sinners. He came and died exactly for those whom you and I, 
would never choose to save. If there are six people in the water needing to be saved, what's the order of their salvation? First, your family members, if there are some there. If one of the six is your child, that, uh, that's who you're going to go to first. Uh, you bring your children or your child to safety first. Then, um, if you know enough about those who remain, you, you save the surgeon. Uh, you save the philanthropist. Um, uh, you save the one who has money to give to others. Uh, but if there is a criminal among those in the water, well, they come last if they come at all. And it's kind of okay if, if by the time you get around to the last of the six, maybe, maybe they have already died. Oh, well, they, they were only a criminal. But when it comes to our salvation, we are all criminals. So the second point is the unrighteousness of sinners saved. In verse 8, Paul points out, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. With Christ, everyone in the water deserves to be in the water. No one deserves to be saved. If one is a doctor on the the verge of curing cancer, if another is uh, is a faithful husband and father, uh, if another is a selfless wife and mother, If another is a criminal, it has no bearing on who Christ saves first and who Christ saves last. Or perhaps who doesn't get saved at all. Jesus already said it. Paul is not making this up as he goes along. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the love of God. And it doesn't come in the shape of a heart. It comes in the shape of a cross. And it's a cross where Jesus suffered and died, not for the righteous, because if if there were any righteous to be counted among mankind, they wouldn't need Jesus to suffer and die for them. Jesus came to suffer and die for sinners, which means that he came to suffer and to die exactly for those who don't deserve to have him suffer and die for them. This is what we must understand if we are to understand the love of God. And this is what we must understand if we are to understand what love really is. A man and a woman stand in front of a preacher, and everyone says, Ah, the bride in her white dress, the groom in his rented tux. I've never quite figured that one out. The bride gets to keep her dress, the most expensive dress her father ever bought her. The groom has to return his suit to the rental store on Elm Street uh, on Monday morning. But there they are. They're in love. And maybe they even incorporate the, the hand thing into their ceremony. They each form, how's that go? One half of the, of the heart, um, and everyone says, "Ah." Well, that's fine, but is that the extent of love? 
No. There is a life to be lived. There is faithfulness to be carried out. There is love to be given. There's love to be received. Uh, as a husband uh, lays down his life for his bride, as a bride, as a wife, lays down her life for her husband. More than ever, we need, I think, in our day and culture, to return to God's definition of love. It, it's, it's true of all our terms that we must take our, their definition from God himself. He is the standard of all things in this world and in our lives. How do we define and know there is such a thing as sin in the world? Well, because God is holy and reveals his holiness by calling us to be holy in his law. And how do we define and know what love is? Do we trust Hallmark to define that for us? No, we, we know what love is by looking to God, by seeing that he so loved the world that he gave, and he gave his only begotten son and gave him not just to be born and not just to live, not just to do miracles to prove his divinity, but to suffer and to die that we might not have to suffer and die. That's what love is. I'm not naive enough to think that, uh, that I can cancel the whole culture. They want to cancel us. We, we can't possibly cancel our whole culture. I don't, I'm not naive enough to think that you know Valentine's Day ought to be changed in some way. But, but I am hopeful enough to think that, that I can hereby, in this sermon, proclaim the love of God in Christ that by a ministry of the Holy Spirit, each of us and all of us together might come to know what love really is. Love is God, and God is love, says the Apostle John in, in 1 John 4. There is an equal sign, in a sense, between God and love, which doesn't mean that God is not also full of wrath and judgment for sin. In fact, the wrath and judgment of God are needed to know in order also to know the love of God. The love of God is revealed in this, that while we were yet sinners, deserving only of hell, yet God gave his Son, yet Christ the Son gave himself. In life and in death, he gave himself that the Spirit might be given, even poured out in the knowledge of these very things. And so finally, the salvation of the saved. And isn't that a, a strange thing to say, the salvation of the saved? If we're saved, why do we need salvation? We're already saved. But God's word says this in Romans 5, verse 8, that since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by the, or, or, or from the wrath of God. And Paul even, even says it again in verse 10. For if while we were enemies of God, here, here is Christ saving the criminal out of the waters of sin. If while we were enemies of God, Christ 
uh, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Here is Paul tying together both the death and the resurrection of Christ. If Christ died, why did he need to be raised? Sounds kind of wrong to even ask that question, uh, and I don't mean to offend, but why doesn't our salvation come by Jesus remaining in hell while we get to go to heaven? That's how it might happen in this life, right? Someone saves a dozen people, in the end, they themselves perish. They, they don't show up for the ceremony to recognize their heroic efforts. Then they don't show up because they can't show up because they're dead. But Jesus, our Savior, died and rose again. And he did so firstly because he deserved it. He rose again because he deserved it. He, he even earned his resurrection. But again, he earned it for us. And this is what Paul means when he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, can there be a more to Jesus dying for sinners? Yes, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. He died for us, but he's alive. The points of emphasis are death and life. We are reconciled to God because Christ has died for us. He has suffered the wrath and judgment of God in our place. But if so, how much greater is our hope and our peace and our joy because he rose again. Because he lives. Because he is seated for us at the right hand of the Father. And he is there. For us forevermore. And so in the final verse, verse 11, the Apostle Paul matches the much more of Christ's resurrection with the more than that of our salvation. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's the thing about the gospel. There is always so much more for us to seek out and to understand. Heaven itself, which has been earned for us and promised to us, is beyond our comprehension. Paul writes in uh, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But as faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of things we do not see, then, then will we not search out these things as much as we can within the Holy Word of God? And as we close our study and proclamation of these 11 verses, let's just review, not just to straighten our theological tie, but for the sake of our hope, our peace, and our joy in Christ. Propitiation. Christ suffered and died to take upon himself and to turn away from us the wrath of God. Therefore, we have been redeemed 
Redemption in Christ, bought back from the devil to belong forever to Christ, the one who has redeemed us. Therefore, justification. We are right with God. In sin, we were wrong with God, if you want to put it that way. We were under his wrath. But in Christ, we are right with God, even righteous in his holy eyes. Therefore, reconciliation. We have peace with God. In fact, we have hope and peace and joy. And that's how Paul concludes this passage in verse 11, with joy again. More than that, when it comes to the gospel, there is always more. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. Please pray with me. Your word is so rich and so deep and so full of good news, O God. Help us to plumb its depths. Help us to mine it out. Help us to to learn and to, to grow in our faith by knowledge as we come to see how fully we are blessed in Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you, dear Father, for your saving grace to us through your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.